We're at a moment in our time as a church, as a ministry, where we're seeing, wow, we've had blind spots where we've only talked about this in this one way and only seeing God work in an individual context and not so much in in a corporate context. Welcome to Listener. I'm Listener's creator, producer, editor, and host, Sam Holland. Today's episode is part one of Eat the Meat, Spit Out the Bones, featuring Rasul Berry of Crew City, and you won't want to miss part two. Is there someone you'd like to hear interviewed on Listener? Email me at samantha.holland at crew.org. Enjoy the show. Which part of New York do you live in? Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Okay. And what do you do for fun in Brooklyn? (laughs) Oh man, there's a, Brooklyn is such a cool place uh, to live. Uh, the funny thing about when I just moved here two and a half years ago, and you know when you are living outside of New York, Manhattan is kind of like the epicenter of everything that you think about in New York City. But then when you move here, you you realize that the attitude and swag of New York is kind of concentrated in Brooklyn where Brooklynites <laughs> actually feel like why would I go to Manhattan there's nothing out there for me <laughs> so so uh so yeah I learned early on that um Brooklyn for example all right so this I'm a little bit of a history nerd so um I watched the uh, PBS special on New York it was like 20 hours of like material when I got here Whoa. And one of the key moments, so Brooklyn used to be a separate city. And in 1898, it actually consolidated with New York City. And Brooklynites still refer to that moment as the mistake of 1898. Oh. <laughs> not, not everybody, but some. And so <laughs> there's very much a sense of independence, very much a sense of uh, its own identity. Um, and, and I think and part of it is... You know, because Manhattan has a lot of the inter- it's an international center of commerce and and culture, and people kind of drive there. New York, uh, Brooklyn kind of is a little bit more off the path kind of thing. It's a little bit more, you know, so it kind of has its own vibe. But uh, so in terms of stuff to do, um, you know, I you know I love the the parks here. Prospect Park is a huge park. Um, that's kind of been a, a counterintuitive thing. I moved from Indiana. Uh, I lived in a suburb of, in, of Indianapolis, and um, and so I thought I was surrounded by a lot of green, but actually, because of the closeness I have to the parks here, I actually get to experience more like of that kind of nature. It's easier to come by because it's only a, a mile away than it was, you know, when I had to drive to, you know, a certain place to have that kind of walking route. So uh, that's kind of been fun uh, to, to see that difference. But um, enjoy that. Um, you know, I, I definitely uh, love going to theater. I, I had a cool experience. One of um, our uh, church members is a poet and actor uh, who was in Hamilton. 
And, uh, and so I got to go see him in Hamilton twice uh, since I've been here. Uh, hottest wow. ticket in the city. You can't, is, you got to get into a lottery to get there. And I, I got great balcony seats uh, two times to kind of go check him out as, as he played uh, George Washington once and then he played Aaron Burr the other time. So I uh, love to be able to see that. I saw the color purple. I've seen uh, Les Mis. Um, so I enjoy that. Um, I also, uh, I'm a big sports fan, so I've been able to go to, um, you know, Brooklyn Nets game, um, cheaper than going to Madison Square Garden to see the Knicks. Uh, so that's been cool. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of great things to do. I'm a foodie. Uh, you know, I have Yelp elite status. That's kind of my, uh, one of my uh, proud moments. Wait, does that mean that you've left a certain number of reviews on Yelp? No, it actually is actually more significant than that. They choose to invite certain people, not just based on the volume of their posts, but the quality of their posts. So if people like your posts? Yeah, so I think that's a lot of it, but not even just if people like it. It's a combination of if people like it and if they, the editors themselves say, hey, we think that you're a good represent, representative of Yelp. And so when I review a, a, you know, a entity, a restaurant or wherever, it kind of shows up among the first. Oh, okay. I see. And so what do you think makes a good Yelp review? How, how do you think you achieved your status? Um, I like to bring people into an experience, right? So I guess I just kind of write the way I think I would... I I would want to know things. So I don't just go, hey, the food was like this or the food was like that. But I talk about the whole experience from, you know, the the way the wait staff responded. You know, I try to throw some humor in there. I try to create a theme. You know what I mean? And so, for example, and I, uh, I actually haven't written this review yet, but I keep planning to. Um, so there's this one restaurant that I went to with some of the other staff, uh, the pastors at the church that I serve with. And the door on the front says, um, because the hinge is not working properly, we need you to close the door. Like on your, you know, when you come into the door, you have to go and close the door. And on your way out, you have to close the door. So in that same restaurant experience, we found like the waitress was not very like attentive. There were things that we had to just kind of like get attention in order to get order. And so for my review, I'm going to talk about using the theme of like, this is not a user friendly experience. And that like close the door on your way in and your way out is kind of indicative of like, like everything that happens there. Like right. instead of just fixing the door. Now I've been there for like this this door thing I can tell from the sign has been the case for like at least a few months, if not a year. And literally, I've sat in meetings where we're in meeting, and I have to keep getting up and closing the door because the you know, and it's just like instead of clo- fixing the door, you just want to have people close it. And that's like that's kind of how I feel here. Like instead of you know, like I you you want me to work hard at this, and I feel like when I go to a restaurant, I shouldn't have to work hard. Like I, if I want to work hard, I can just cook at home. So, any case, so that's kind of an uh, example of the type of themes that I try to draw together when I write a uh, a Yelp post. That's good. So. I just started leaving reviews on Yelp recently. I went to Vancouver, BC. My husband ran the marathon there and we took our kids and they 
are famous for having some of the best, most diverse restaurants. So um, I have just ventured into Yelp and started leaving reviews and no one has liked my reviews. So maybe it's less the fact that they're not great and more that I don't have elite status. So I'm not getting, maybe they're not getting seen. I'm sure that's it. I'm I'm sure my reviews are great, but they're just not getting seen. What do you get with elite Yelp status? Yeah, I mean, mostly I just get the ego stroke of feeling special. (laughs) That's the. I mean, uh, there is there when I first got the elite status, there was a invite like there like there are certain events that they'll invite you to. Um, Apparently, I only remember getting the one when I first got the status, but I don't check my email. That's another thing. I mean, when I moved to New York, my email habits have just kind of plummeted. It's just life is so busy. I just don't, you yeah. know, so there's a lot of things waiting in my inbox. Um, as you can kind of attest to just in even setting this interview up. <laughs> no comment. No comment. I mean, have you been, have you attended a Yelp Elite event? Uh, no. My wife did... Like they were having a like kind of an intro event that was wait did I no I thought about going but I didn't go yeah okay okay well that's interesting well Rasul you have mentioned your church a couple times this is is it called Bridge Bridge City Church no just the Bridge Church Bridge Church is it in Brooklyn then. Yes. Yeah, we we meet in uh, downtown Brooklyn, um, just a few blocks from the Barclays Center. Um, And uh, I moved here. So I transitioned from uh, being part of research and development, what I call the artist formerly known as Keynote, uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, to uh, which is in a campus ministry. I transitioned to the city uh, um, ministry and specifically with the millennial team. Um, to be a part of this process of reaching a generation of millennials in New York City um, and th- who are not in college. And, uh, and the specific way that our team works, it's kind of a unique, it's a team, I kind of, I, I call it a team distributed. Like we all have like different points of entry into how we uh, do our ministry. It's kind of like the Avengers, right? Like the Avengers are not a team that like, they're not like a campus team where they meet on a weekly basis and they all kind of focus on the same t- things. They kind of do their thing. They have their separate movies and then they kind of come together when like, you know, on certain big things that happen. And uh, like when there's an infinity war. Exactly. When the, like, you got to come together. When an intergalactic, you know, megalomaniac decides to consume the half the population or destroy it, then they come together. And that's kind of like us. Like we um, so we meet twice a month. We don't meet every week as a team. And there are elements of what we do that are just focused on our particular context. And then there are things that are like the Avengers, like where we assemble and uh, do some type of big events together. And, and all are moving toward the same vision of, you know, basically helping uh, millennials to thrive in the city and really live out the kingdom principles of being a Christ follower at their job, as you know, in their church. And um, 
you know, in their world. And so uh, that's really the vision behind the mission, the millennial team. And, um, and my specific part in that is uh, by serving as a pastor, a teaching pastor at uh, Bridge Church, um, where which is predominantly millennials. Um, and um, and so that's the kind of point of connection. And so uh, there's a lot of interface uh, between those two things. I actually read your pastor bio on your church website. Okay. And I learned that your name means messenger in Aramaic. And this is cool. My name means listener in Aramaic, <laughs> which is how the podcast got its name. But this is good. You're, you're the messenger, at least right now. And I'm the listener. But I thought that was cool that your name means messenger. Yeah, it's actually in Arabic, not Aramaic. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Either I got that wrong or it's wrong on the website. But it's probably me. That's good to know that it says Aramaic. Okay. It's probably me. I'll look again. But um, how did you end up with an Arabic name? Yes. Uh, well, my parents uh, had uh, converted to Islam before I was born. Um and so my name is Rasul I mean Akbar Barry. It's a whole uh, Arabic name. And uh, my father had been the main influence uh, in that uh, with my mom. They broke up when I was two. Um, and so, uh, you know, they kind of drifted apart. Uh, he was actually murdered when I was six. Um, and uh, so I was raised in a single parent home. Uh, my older brother, you know, myself and my mom, uh, she did an incredible job uh, raising two boys, um, you know, with the help of aunts and my grandparents um, as well. Uh, so um, I always say that God has a sense of humor because especially uh, in New York City, um, I, use, I use an Uber a lot uh, to get around, especially when I'm late and or they have some type of deal going on and um, so I can get a good rate on a car and a significant amount of the drivers of the Ubers are, um, are Arabic or Muslim. And so when they see your, my name, uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been stopped. Like they come in, you know, I get in the car and they're like, do you know what your name means? And I say, yes, it means prophet. And they go, yes. So are you a Muslim? And I go, no, I'm a Christian. I'm actually a pastor. And they go, oh, how did that happen? And I get to share my testimony uh, with them. And uh, so that's kind of been a, a cool thing. And I, and I definitely uh, believe that, you know, God had his own purposes, even from my birth and giving me that name. Mm -hmm. So how did that happen? How, what is your story? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, I uh, was raised by my mom for the most part um, and uh, was pretty much just like we kind of drifted into secularism for the most part. I mean, I didn't one one rule, though, I could not eat pork. And that was like a rule, you know, that was maintained. Do you still not eat pork? Actually, now I don't eat meat at all. Um, you know, for the last since cruise 17, actually, I my wife and I decided to experiment and, you know, with a plant-based diet. Um, so we've been doing that uh, for almost a year now. Oh, excellent. Yeah. But yeah. So, but no, I, de I definitely kept that, um, that tradition. Uh, one, cause when I tried to veer from it, I just kind of, my stomach was like, Hey, we're not used to this. So that wasn't, yeah. that wasn't fun. But um, yeah. So I, by the time I was in high school, um, I was 
pretty much an agnostic. I kind of believe that there was a God, but I had been exposed to a lot of different beliefs and things. So I just kind of was like, okay, religion is kind of just man's way of trying to explain the unexplainable and a crutch that some people need that's good for them. I'm not one of those people. And that was my mentality until my senior year um, when God used circumstances to really get my attention. And basically the circumstances were, um, he kind of just knocked me off my self-righteous high horse by, I got caught trying to be in a relationship with two girls at the same time. And uh, which was a unusual and unlikely set of circumstances for me. Cause I was never really, uh, you know, uh, good in that arena. But in any case, I got caught and, uh, the girl confronted me. She said, you know, you're no better than other guys. In fact, you're worse because you think you're better than them. And um, and I remember that hit me. It was like a rock that got thrown through this uh, this faulty, this distorted mirror of, that I had of myself that whatever good enough was, I was. And it made me ask the question, well, if this person, you know, who's a flawed human being, has legitimate reason to um, to not think I am good enough. What makes me think that God, who's perfect, is impressed with my resume? And I didn't have an answer to that. So then I shared with the other uh, young lady, who I'm like, I might as well just put it all on the table. So I shared with her what happened. And I'll never forget, she said, I forgive you. And I said, huh? why would you do that? And she said, well, because... Jesus Christ has forgiven me for everything that I've done in my life, so I can't hold this against you. And I was blown away by that response and was like, well, help me. And it was not just blown away because of what the character that that showed with her, but I also was blown away because that was the very thing I was trying to figure out now. It was like, what do I, how do I get over this bad thing that I've done and um, find a sense of redemption, find a sense of forgiveness? Um, and so she kind of had this answer. So I said, well, can you tell me more about that? She started inviting me to church and I started hearing the, like the gospel. I had heard the contents of it before, but because, um, of my pride, it had always just been an intellectual rejection. But now because I realized I was in need of something, um, of someone, I realized that salvation and the savior was not just, religious words that somebody else created, but it was very much something that my heart and soul, you know, needed to pay attention to. And so I began to very slowly and with much trepidation because I had heard all of the different stereotypes and, you know, uh, in the media about Christians and what people were like and yet even my own experiences. Um, and so I kind of was like just ventured in um, slowly, but eventually my the summer between my graduating my senior year and by entering into college um, my freshman year, um, I made the decision to follow Christ um, and put my faith in him and, and started on that journey. So for me, my spiritual journey literally started, you know, with my college experience, which is why campus ministry became such a, a vital part of my own development and eventually getting connected with crew and, and others who were really trying to uh, live out their faith in that kind of a environment. And, um, and I think it really helped me 
to uh, take my faith seriously and understand the reason for the hope that I had within me. So since we're in high school in your timeline, Rasul, I want to ask you about something that I read on your Facebook wall, but I want your permission because it's recent and it's a conversation that you had with, I think, a white friend about how racism has personally affected you. Yes. I read in your post that the autobiography of Malcolm X in 10th grade changed your life. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, that that was happening and then you became a Christian and went off to college. Mm-hmm. How, what was it like for all of that to be happening in your life and how did that book change your life as Christ was changing your life? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, as I read in that, wrote in that post, uh, which by the way, has got more response to anything I've ever writ, writ, written um, on on Facebook, um, which is kind of powerful um, because I was explaining, he asked this question about my personal experiences with racism. Been having this dialogue. I've never physically met this person. Our interaction really started contentiously because he, he kind of raised some critiques about a blog post that I had written back in like October. And uh, but we decided to just be committed to still keep the conversation going ever since. And uh, and and it's been great. But in case. So as it relates to the Malcolm X uh, autobiography. So as I mentioned um, in that post, I up until 10th grade, I had never learned much at all about like the African-American experience, like historically Right. Um, I mean, I had my embodied experiences and the stories that I had heard around me. But, you know, similar to how someone who might be Italian might know certain just traditions that their family have. That doesn't mean they know the history of Italy and and all the things that inform why they are the way they are. And um, and so for me, that book um, and hearing this story of how he. Um, you know, really came became aware and awake, uh, awakened to the realities of of racism that were really foundational to his experience, and um, and began to be an activist as a result of those experiences. Uh, it it kind of just made me aware of like, wait a minute, this is like a real issue in our society, in our country, and this is how this shaped this individual's life and. Up until that point, I'd only seen like the the pictures of him and just the kind of sense of militancy. But to actually, I mean, he was incredibly eloquent uh, communicator and and storyteller. And his story was very profound. His father was actually a Baptist preacher who uh, was um, a supporter of Marcus Garvey uh, and uh, who was one of the first Pan-Africanists who really cast vision for black people to be... Um, feel a sense of uh, pride and esteem for who they are and who they were. In any case, so his father was killed and murdered by Klansmen as a result of trying to organize the black community around him to like be a part of things like voting and things like that. And so a lot of his, so hearing just his experiences um, really just kind of made myself aware. I'm like, man, I don't know much of my, my story. I don't know much of my history. And um, but then also to see a sense of triumph and a sense of of uh, courage that it took for him to, um, you know, to 
to live in that truth was really inspiring. The interesting thing, for as significant as that book was in my formation of my kind of uh, awareness of my cultural, ethnic, and racial identity, I mean, it spiritually or religiously, as he talks about his conversion, his conversion to the nation of Islam first, and then Sunni Islam, and the book really acts as a almost like a tract, um, you know, for for Islam. That part never got to me, even though his life was actually something that was something that had compelled my father and mother to convert to the nation of Islam as well. And so it, I thought that was it, but I just never fully got there to that part. So all the other things that he was saying socially, politically, I found truth in and just the journey itself. Um, so, but it gave, it was a key and important stepping stone because it, I guess when you're in high school, oftentimes as teenagers, you're just really thinking about yourself and just going through your diff- different issues of, Am I cool? Do girls like me? You know what I mean? Like all of that. And so it kind of was the first time that I took a zoomed out picture of the world and said, wow, like there are things there. There's a battle about good and evil uh, that exists that is bigger than my, you know, particular day to day, you know, struggles in my own personal world. And I do think that that set the stage for um, helping me understand the gospel and realizing that the problem isn't just out there um, in the world, but it's also in here in my actual soul. And uh, but but having the sobriety and the in the sense of significance of my you know of like God has put me here for a reason and to do something that that book and that that I mean I'm, my grades change. I was like an some above average student. I was like maybe 3.0. After I read that book, I became like three. I actually was salutatorian second in my class. And I, and, and, and I think about that because all of a sudden it just life had more purpose and meaning and, 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 and responsibility than what I had been thinking about before. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was really significant. So your grades changed because of the Malcolm X book. Yes. After I read that book, I started, I became a better student. Yeah. Wow. Much better suit. Yeah. It's interesting, Rasul, that you came to that realization the problem's not out there, it's in here, at least the spiritual problem, right, in all of us, the brokenness. Um, I'm very much a learner when it comes to discovering the racialization of our culture. I didn't even know that word until two days ago. When I started reading Divided by Faith. Great book. Such an eye-opening book. It was really staff conference, Crew 15, that I became aware for the first time. So that was at the age of 39 for me that racialization was a thing. And I didn't have a word for it. But I, I was born and raised in a really white part of the country and, and didn't even realize that even that, that I lived in a really white part of the country, was a symptom of racialization. Hmm. Um, but as I read that, have, I'm still finishing that book, Divided by Faith, but it seems that the gospel realization that we all have, that the brokenness is inside of us, has been translated now to racialization. And it's been the, kind of the white Protestant view has been, well, 
Well, in if as long as I'm individually mm. loving, not being racist in my attitudes and actions towards black people, then I'm fine. But it's really out outside of us in society that there exists these systematic um I don't know any other word besides this new one I know racialization um that is bigger than each one of us individually. Yeah. And that is really what I'm coming awake to. That's great. Uh and that's really similar to the process. That's what that you know what divided by faith is doing for you is what the autobiography of Malcolm X did for me when I was uh in high school. Um but what Divided by Faith does, which is why I, that's probably the book I recommend people read the most, um, who are especially white evangelical Christians who identify as that, is because, I mean, the book actually studies and, and tries to explain and understand why is it that um, people of faith, black Christians who, you know, would be orthodox, Bible-believing Christians and white Christians see the issue of race and racism so differently um, in in our country. And it does an incredible job. In my background, uh, I was a sociology minor, Africana studies major. And so I lived in that world a lot. Um, and it was helpful. And I would just kind of tweak a little bit. So what I was saying before, when in terms of the realization that the problem wasn't out there was in here. I would say I would just say it wasn't just out there. It was also in here. And I think that's what uh, Divided by Faith talks about is that I think oftentimes there's this um, polarized understanding of reality of our worldviews. And so from a, you know, what we consider like people who just see the problem as social constructs and social issues they only look at power dynamics and only look at inequality and only look at, you know, uh, systems and structures and, um, and dominance and, and majority. Um, and, and oftentimes, you know, and then on the flip side, those who only see the individual and what Divided by Faith talks about is white evangelicals are actually tend to be more individualistic than even white. Americans in general, which I think makes sense when you look at because we are much more we are I'm not white, but, you know, as evangelicals, we're much more tied to a a, a, a certain worldview that's based in a theological understanding. And so whereas the general populace is kind of just picking and choosing ideas from, you know, as they go, but it's not really very rooted in necessarily a ironclad sense of chapter verse theology or whatnot, because that does exist in evangelicalism and just in Christianity in general, it makes sense that because now all of a sudden my assumptions are are supported by what I'm hearing and what's around me. So that that makes sense to me. But um, but yeah, I think it's important for us to hold both of those things together. And what I start to discover and what we start to discover is it's profoundly biblical. It is profoundly biblical to say that, yes, that, the, you know, that there is none righteous, that, you know, we all, you know, are sinners and, and fall short of the glory of God. But the problem is oftentimes evangelicalism stops there. And, OK, so therefore the solution is that we just all have to change our hearts. 
And we somehow forget that in Ephesians chapter six, when Paul is talking about the cosmic struggle and spiritual warfare, he says that our wrestle, our fight is not against, you know, flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. The main motifs in scripture from Genesis on, you know, in the Old Testament, the, the main kind of theme that we keep going back to is the people of Israel being delivered from Egypt. And what God says when he sees in in Exodus chapter two and three, he says, I see the oppression of my people. And you know what I mean? And he decides to respond to a oppression. Now, the, the solution wasn't simply let's try to change individual Egyptians hearts to help them to, you know, you know, love everybody. There was a systemic problem. There was an institutional problem of slavery and, and of, of, uh, of a institutionalized oppression that was pressing down against the people, which is where you see that battle between Moses and Pharaoh and ultimately God and Pharaoh uh, taking place when he says he hardens his heart. And he's like, he decides to dig in his heels and say, okay, now more bricks, less straw. That's a institutional problem. That is a structural inequality, right? That's, you know, and so I think when we develop those tools to see that from the Exodus story, but not only that, the two main, the thing, one of the things that blow me away, when you look at the Old Testament, the two main moments that you get there in terms of God's dealing with his people is the Exodus and exile. And both of those moments have to do with oppression and, and, and people being treated unjustly. I was just reading uh, the Beatitudes. I'm, I'm preaching on that this um, Sunday. And, you know, I was looking at all the footnotes and it's amazing how many of the footnotes go back to Isaiah, you know, Isaiah 55, Isaiah 61, that, that talks about how God is on the side of the oppressed, that he hears their cries. And so when, when Jesus is saying, blessed is the poor in spirit, you know, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When he says, blessed are the meek, because they shall inherit the earth. There's been all this debate. And you see, you know, like, so like liberal theologians will say, yeah, this is only talking about those who are economically oppressed. And then conservative theologians will say, no, this is only talking about people who are spiritually broken before God. And, and, and when I keep going back and forth the, in, in looking at the context, it's all of it, that there is a tendency for people who have been on the margins, who have been, who have, who have felt that sense. Because what happens in Exodus chapter two, it says the people began to cry out to God because of their affliction and because of what they were experiencing. And this is part of the reason why Jesus continues to reach out to the poor. And he said, he looks at the rich person and says, it's harder for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God than a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he, he wasn't obviously condemning wealth, but he's just acknowledging something that there is a certain type of awareness of brokenness, of a certain type of awareness of, of need and of lack that happens when you are under the thumb of somebody else and you know that you're not the society and the system doesn't work for you. And um, and, and that gives you a certain awareness of a need. God, I need your help because I can't change this. I mean, you know, this is what part of the reason why the slaves, the African-American slaves, you know, cried out to God because it's like, I can't change this situation. I need help. And there was something about what they were able to tap into in terms of their awareness of how God works and how to cry out to him that was unique as a result of their experience of oppression. And of course, many of them, um, 
identify very much with the Exodus story, which is why even to this day, like, you know, there are a lot of, you know, names of churches, black churches, or even people that are, are Old Testament driven, you know what I mean? Names like, you know, Ezekiel or Joshua or, you know, and, and, and that's because, you know, there's that point of, re- of recognition, of resonance with the story of, um, of liberation um, from struggle. And so uh, that's, you know, I, I think that, that joining those two things together, and I think we're at a moment in our time as a church, as a ministry, where we're seeing, wow, we've had blind spots where we've only see, talked about this in this one way and only seeing God work in an individual context and not so much in a, in a corporate context. And now we see we need to deal with all of that so that we can fully understand and divide the whole counsel of God. Thanks for listening to part one of Eat the Meat, Spit Out the Bones featuring Rasul Berry. Join us next time for part two when Rasul and I will talk about how Christianity is not a white man's religion, the biblical topics of slavery and women, and Black Panther, Kanye West, and the Avengers. See you next time.